Thank you, Sarah, for that instrumental. And before I begin, I do want to introduce uh, another visitor with you, who's not with us, who's not really a visitor, but my dad is with us here today, uh, visiting up from Ohio for a couple of months, staying with us. My dad actually uh, pastored for over 65 years in 10 different congregations and preached my installation service right here in this room uh, as senior pastor in 1994. And I thought about that this week, and he was actually younger on that day than I am today, which I think is <laughs> kind of weird when you think about it. But thanks for being here, Dad. Glad you're here. I have a question. Thank you. <laughs> you didn't have to do anything to get that applause. Yeah. <laughs> question. I want to begin with a question today. How many of you can remember the name of your sixth grade school teacher? Oh, a lot of you. Another question is, how many of you can even remember sixth grade? <laughs> right. Well, my sixth grade teacher was a man named Mr. Kandari, and he was one of my favorite teachers of all time. First of all, because he was the first male teacher I had in my schooling life. Secondly, because he was also the varsity basketball coach at our local high school, and I thought that was kind of awesome. Well, in sixth grade, our gym teacher decided to have a, an, a sixth grade intramural basketball tournament. And this was a big deal, at least to me. You talk about the NBA, March Madness, peanuts. This was the sixth grade intramural championship of HCC Crittenden High School where I grew up. And so my team ended up winning the championship in front of the whole student body. And uh, imagine my thrill as I came off the court that day when my teacher, the varsity basketball coach, reached out his hand and shook my hand and said, good job. I'd actually seen him do that to the big high school guys after a winning big game. He did, would do the same thing. He'd shake their hands and say, good job, and now he said it to me. And that comment of commendation, of compliment, uh, to have him say that was, uh, to me, a profound thing. And I remembered it to this day. But, on the other hand, this is the same man uh, who ran a tight ship in the classroom. And so he was constantly having to discipline my buddies and me uh, for just goofing off in class, because that's what we did in sixth grade. And his favorite punishment was making us write out by hand one whole page in our social studies textbook. And he always said the same page, because it was his habit. I can still remember what the page was about. It was called The Island of Formosa. We had to write out the whole thing by hand, and we did that so many times that toward the end of the school year, I realized that I could do it without opening the book. <laughs> I think that's how I learned to memorize the Bible. I learned to memorize that social studies book, and I could write it out uh, by hand. But the point was, Mr. Kandari, my sixth grade teacher, taught my sixth grade self both commendation and confrontation. And that's what we see in the series we're in this summer. We're in a series called The Seven Churches of Revelation. And so far, we've learned that Revelation is a letter written by the Apostle John at the end of the first century. And it's written to uh, uh, encourage and strengthen Christians living in an increasingly hostile culture and time. We've learned that the center of the book, uh, the center of Revelation, is Jesus Christ himself, that he is the one being revealed. He is the lamb on the throne. He is the risen and sovereign king of heaven. He is the ruler of all things and calls his church to faithful endurance and promises that he is coming again soon. John now is presenting to us a series of seven letters that are dictated by Jesus himself through a series of visions 
uh, written to seven literal historic churches in Asia Minor, and they were addressing the specific situation of each of these churches. But we also know that these letters are for the church, capital C, throughout history, including Chapel Street, where we are today, right here in Geneva, 21st century. And so far we've seen that what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, which was a church uh, of sound doctrine, but they had lost their first love. Last week we looked at the church at Smyrna, a church that was faithful even in poverty and under great suffering. Now today we're going to look at what Jesus has to say to the church in a city called Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to begin with verse 12. These are the words of Jesus himself. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now let me stop right there. It says, to the angel of the church at Pergamum. Now all seven of these churches uh, were in the western region of what we now call Turkey. If you take a look at this map, you can see we've listed the, the, the little stars represent where all the churches are. And you'll see that Pergamum is all the way uh, on the upper part of the center of the screen. It was the northernmost of these cities that we're talking about, roughly 50 miles or so north of the city of uh, Smyrna. First century Pergamum was a different kind of city than the two we've looked at so far, than Ephesus or Smyrna, uh, where Ephesus was kind of like uh, the New York City of that part of the world, and uh, Smyrna could be seen kind of like Chicago, uh, not as big and influential as New York, but, but pretty significant as well. Uh, Pergamum was different. Pergamum was more like Washington, D.C., meaning it was more known for its political clout than anything, anything else. Because Pergamum at the time of John's vision was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, the center of political power for the whole region. And it was known for several other things as well. I love a little bit of history here, so let me give you some ancient history about Pergamum. It boasted the second largest library of the entire ancient world, some 200,000 volumes, the largest collection outside of Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, Pergamum was also known as the medical center of the Roman world. Uh, there was a shrine to the Greek god of healing called Esculapius, and his symbol was interestingly the form of a serpent that is still used today in some uh, medical logos. More significantly for our understanding today, however, is that Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor to actually build a temple for the worship of the emperor. And you'll see here, these are actual ruins that still stand uh, of a temple called the Temple of Trajan, who was the name of an emperor. And finally, the city itself was built on a hill, and at the very top of that hill, called the Acropolis, some 1,000 feet above the city, stood a great altar to Zeus, the chief god of the Greeks. Um, it was sometimes called the throne of Zeus, and we're going to see what it looked like in just a couple of moments. So Pergamum, just as we begin, was both heavily political and heavily pagan. The citizens were expected to sacrifice to the gods, small g, pagan gods, to venerate the emperor. Uh, and when Christians refused to participate in these things, there were severe consequences. So we're going to see the significance of all that I just showed you as Jesus speaks to his church. Next, I want you to notice that uh, Jesus identifies himself as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, some of you are going to recognize that imagery. It comes from uh, Revelation chapter 1 that we looked back at a few weeks ago, John's vision of the exalted Christ, when in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, In his right hand he held seven stars. 
From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You might also recall it's a reference to uh, the truth of God's word. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. There's the image again. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, the joints of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the image of the sharp two-edged sword was symbolic of spiritual truth, the truth of the word of God, and the authority to render judgment based on that truth. And all of this points us to what Jesus wants to address in this church at Pergamum. We'll pick up our text in chapter 2, verse 13. Again, the words of Jesus. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We'll also talk about who Antipas was. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who, are hold, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Balaam and Balak were figures from the Old Testament, which we'll talk about in a minute. So also you have come some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We'll talk about them in a minute too. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. Okay, here we once again see a threefold message we've seen in some of the other letters. It begins with a commendation, moves on to a confrontation, and then it wraps up with a call to repentance. Let's look first at a commendation. How many of you are watching the Olympics in Tokyo? Anybody paying attention to the Olympics? Okay. Uh, I uh, always enjoy the Olympics. Uh, Lorene and I sit around at night for these two weeks, and we just, we just watch the Olympics. It's just what we do. And we get, sort of get sucked into the whole thing. You know, uh, we get pulled into the, the competition and the, the backstories of the athletes. We are, and we're watching stuff and getting excited about stuff. Sports we don't even know much, that much about, right? Sports like, you know, synchronized swimming. Or maybe a water polo. Have you ever watched water polo? Who is crazy enough to play that sport? I was watching yesterday and I got anxious. Somebody's going to drown. <laughs> or badminton. Have you watched Olympic badminton? That's not the sport we play in the backyard. <laughs> right? How about race walking? Now, race walking it always makes me giggle. Because it just looks like a bunch of penguins walking as fast as they can down the track, race walking. Or how about the modern pentathlon? Do you know what that is? The modern pentathlon. These were, this is where athletes compete in five different skills. Anybody know what they are? This is one event, the, pen, the modern pentathlon, five skills. Okay, since you're not volunteering. Fencing, right? Fencing, swimming. Those go together, don't they? Fencing, swimming, horseback riding, running, and pistol shooting. Now, I just have some questions. How, how does someone decide that that's what they want to do with their life? I want to do those five things better than anybody in the world. Imagine how hard it is to train. First of all, you need a pool, and you need a horse. You need someone willing to sword fight with you, 
and you need a shooting range. And then you need a cross-country course to run on for the running part of it. Well, whatever the sport, what intrigues me about all of these athletes is that they've, they've trained for years, some of them most of their lives, for this moment. And for one chance to do what? For one chance to win a medal. To win a medal. To win a gold medal. To stand in that podium, hear the national anthem of your nation being played and receive the ultimate commendation that they are the best in the world at their sport. And I have hope. If popcorn eating ever becomes an Olympic sport, <laughs> now I got a chance for gold. Jesus speaks, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, I want to point out three things here. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What does he mean by Satan's throne? Well, scholars believe Jesus is referring to either the altar of Zeus, which was called the throne of Zeus, which I showed you, told you about before. Here's a, a scale model of it. This is actually in a museum in Berlin. And you can see it kind of looks like a great throne. You can imagine someone sitting on that with their arms on the, on the sides of it. But it was enormous. It was like 100 yards wide and like 60 feet tall. Just enormous. Or they were referring to the Temple of Trajan, which was the focus of emperor worship in that city. This is an artist's rendition of what that temple may have looked like. And you'll remember that the very first of the Ten Commandments that God gave his people in Exodus chapter 20 reads like this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So the throne of Zeus or the temple of Trajan were blatant violations of God's law, and therefore uh, Jesus regarded both of them as idolatrous and a threat to his church and to his people. So we can assume uh, that the Christians in Pergamum were under intense social, religious, and political pressure to compromise their faith and to participate in the pagan activities and rituals of the surrounding community. But Jesus says, notice, he says, yet you hold fast my name. That's his commendation. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus is saying that even though they were living in the shadow of Satan's throne, even though they were under intense pressure to compromise, uh, even under the threat of death itself, they refused to deny his name. And that's a commendation. Whenever I read this passage or passages like it, uh, I think of my visit to Russia years ago, and I've told this story many, many times. Uh, before preaching at Transfiguration Baptist Church in Samara, Russia, the pastor took me into a room and introduced me to his elders, old men all over 75, and he introduced them by giving me each man's resume of persecution, ticking through what each man, each one of them had suffered for the name of Christ. In fact, these men were chosen as elders because they had suffered for the name. Now, I think we have to admit that we who live here in this country at this time have not experienced anything even close to that 
in our lives. Not, not yet, anyway. We've not. We do live, however, in a culture that is uh, challenging our faith uh, and that is increasingly hostile to what we believe. Jesus says, You did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Now, who is this Antipas? Generally, according to tradition, he's regarded as the first Christian martyr uh, mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, and we don't know for sure, but tradition tells us Antipas may have been an elder in the church at Pergamum, and that he was accused uh, by being a traitor of being a traitor to Rome because he was leading people away from pagan practices, leading people away from worshiping their ancestral gods through by preaching Christ to them. And according to tradition, again, in A.D. 92, uh, Antipas was dragged by an angry mob into what was called the Temple of Serapis, now called the Red Basilica, the ruins of which still stand. And there he was put to death by being burned alive in uh, an incense burner dedicated to a bull god named Apis. And to this day, Antipas is regarded as a saint by the Eastern Orthodox Church tradition. Jesus is commending the church in Pergamum because they have not denied his name. But then comes a confrontation. Here's the second point we see, a confrontation. Uh, years ago now, I don't remember exactly when, uh, one of our Sunday school teachers here at Chapel Street, then First Baptist of Geneva, uh, came up after services to tell me a, a story that had happened just that day in a toddler class. These are, these are two- and three-year-olds, okay, toddler class. She said she was teaching the children using a flannel graph. Remember the flannel graphs? It was sort of technology before we had these, these things. <laughs> flannel graph. And she was teaching the story. She had taught the story of uh, Noah and the ark several weeks earlier. You know, okay, children, this is Noah. She put the little felt thing up on the board. This is the ark and all the animals. She taught the story. Well, a few weeks later, she'd gotten to the story of Moses. And she went to tell the story of Moses using the flannel graph, but she couldn't find the little felt figure of Moses, so she just grabbed the, the one of Noah again, the one she'd used for Noah. And she's put it up on the board and said, Now, children, this is Moses. And a little three-year-old boy said, No, no, teacher, that's not Moses, that's Noah. <laughs> and he would not let her continue until she went and found another little figure because he wasn't having any of that liberal stuff in Sunday school. Right. <laughs> Verse 14, Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So let me get into this a bit. So uh, who was Balaam and who were the Nicolaitans? Now Balaam uh, was a prophet, a foreign prophet actually, uh, whose story is found in the book of Numbers. And it's a really interesting, strange uh, story, complicated. Uh, his story has two distinct parts. Let me just summarize. He was initially hired by a man named Balak, who was the pagan king of Moab, to curse Israel. Now, Moab was an enemy of Israel, and Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel so he could defeat them in a war. But, uh, and he offered to pay him to do this. But, uh, so on the way to meet with Balak then, uh, an angel of the Lord confronts Balaam as he's riding on his donkey. And a rather humorous story takes place when, Balaam, when the donkey sees the angel, but Balaam does not see the angel. Since the donkey sees the angel, he stops, and Balaam gets mad, and he beats the donkey for stopping. And eventually the donkey turns and speaks to Balaam. 
God speaks through the donkey to Balaam. And I always have a side note here. This is very encouraging to us who preach because if God can speak through a donkey, maybe we have a chance. Well, then Balaam's eyes are opened, and he sees the angel, and God speaks through the donkey and tells Balaam that he may only speak what God tells him to say. And that's what Balaam does. He refuses to curse Israel, and he only blesses them instead, and that's good. However, evidently, we aren't told exactly in the Old Testament, but we read other evidence in the New Testament, Balaam seems to have made some other kind of deal with Balak because he's eventually blamed for suggesting that the king, the way to beat Israel is for the king to entice the men of Israel to enter into illicit relationships with the women of Moab. We actually see in Numbers chapter 25 the result of this. It says, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. And so Balaam's name comes later to symbolize any teacher who claimed to be from God, but rather influenced God's people to participate in ungodly or unholy practices. Now, the teaching of the Nicolaitans was mentioned earlier in the letter to the Ephesians, and they seem to have been a group who was teaching in the church kind of a twisted version of the gospel, that grace meant that nothing we do in our bodies really matters, that grace covers everything, so therefore you can do anything you want with your body, which opened up all sorts of immoral practices. Jesus is simply saying that a compromise in doctrine always leads to a compromise in behavior. And we can see this when he says, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, he's not just talking about, you know, uh, by eating certain foods. Because to eat the foods meant you were participating in a sort of feasting ritual. Because in that time, in that culture, trade guilds were all tied up with the pagan practices of worship. So to eat the food that had been sacrificed to idols meant you were attending one of these feasts and therefore participating in all the immorality that came along with it. So unlike the church in Ephesus who refused to compromise on doctrine, here the church in Pergamum appears to have drifted into a kind of accommodation and compromise with the culture. So maybe there were some in that church who were saying things like, well, you know, what's the big deal? with emperor worship anyway. I mean, if we, if we don't participate in all this, we starve. I mean, God wants us to eat, right? Maybe some were saying, can't we just bow to the emperor Monday through Saturday, worship Jesus on Sunday? You know, everybody wins. We're all good. We need to, need to see how contemporary this ancient letter is. Now, we don't have, you know, temples to... Uh, Trajan, or we don't have a, a place of worshiping the emperor, but we do face a cultural uh, pressure to compromise certain things that we believe. I think it happens when we, for example, confuse the truth of the gospel with what I would call the gospel of our culture. How many times have you heard, just follow your own truth, be your own truth, be true to yourself? Speak your own truth. The gospel of our culture today is you create truth. Truth is yours. It belongs to you. And we can compromise what we believe to be the truth. 
Or maybe uh, what you hear often is that, well, you know, all religions are essentially the same. Or all approaches to spirituality are equally true as long as you believe them in your heart. All these things sound good to us, but they are compromises and accommodations to culture. It can happen when we increasingly tolerate or even participate in the growing immorality of our culture. It happens when we compromise in the area of sexual purity or in the holiness of marriage. You know, I think of our young people. I think of our students going off to college or university, finding themselves immersed in a secular university environment that regards the Bible as mythology and the Christian faith as foolish or even dangerous. And eventually, after months and months and months, they begin to cave in. They compromise their faith. And that compromised faith always results in compromised behavior. Or maybe the pressure comes from the professional world, the business world. I had a friend in church uh, years ago, a gentleman who was a, 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 an executive in a company who told me at his company, the executives had developed a habit of going out after work several times a year, late at night to, let's just say, places of adult entertainment. That's a polite way to say it. And that if you ever wanted to make partner in that company, you had to participate. And he asked me what he should do. So we talked about what Jesus would have him do. And I think he eventually changed jobs, changed companies. See, Jesus here confronts the church in Pergamum. He says, I have a few things against you. You are tolerating false teachers. Instead of influencing the world around you as salt and light as I told you to be, you are being influenced by the culture. So he confronts them on this. And that leads thirdly to what I'm calling a call to repentance. A call to repentance. Verse 16. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. Now, this word repent, um, we saw a couple of weeks ago, and we've actually see it, we actually see it in five of the seven letters. Jesus uses the same word. And it's a word that we don't use a whole lot anymore, but it's a good word. It's a word we should use, at least within ourselves, because it just means to turn around. It means to recognize the direction one is going in is wrong or sinful, and it means to turn around it and go back in the direction God is calling us to go. Repent, he says. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember the sharp two-edged sword? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, that word means victory, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So Jesus says, repent, turn around, and if you do not repent, I will bring judgment. But for those who do repent, who conquer, who know the victory of Christ himself, I will promise a threefold inheritance. First, he says, the promise of hidden manna. Now, you know what manna is. Manna takes us back to the Old Testament, God's provision, miraculous provision of manna, of food from heaven to sustain the Israelites in the wilderness. But the reference to hidden manna points to God's promised but yet unseen promise of salvation. We've not seen the glory he has for us yet. We've not seen the new heaven and new earth yet. We've not seen with our eyes the exalted Christ, but he promises us that salvation, the hidden manna. 
Then he gives us the promise of the white stone. Now, the white stone is a bit of a mystery, and there are at least three different possibilities of its uh, most common meaning at the time. Um, the first was that in ancient Greece, in the court, courts of law in ancient Greece, a verdict was often delivered by using the symbolic stones, either a black stone for guilt or a white stone for innocence. So that would make sense. I'll give you a white stone, meaning I've proclaimed you not guilty or innocent. The other way a white stone was used as a sort of ticket for an event, like the athletic games or a theatrical production, it was like having a, having a ticket, which makes some sense as well. They were also given to victors in athletic competition, kind of like a gold medal, and often the white stone had the competitor's name inscribed on it. So in any case, the white stone here symbolizes victory through Christ, that we are declared free from sin and guaranteed entrance into the eternal kingdom of heaven itself. And then there's the third promise, the promise of a new name. Throughout the Bible, names are significant. The Bible's full of names, hundreds of hundreds of names. And whenever a name is changed, it's doubly significant. You remember when God changed the name of Jacob to Israel? Uh, Jesus changed the name of Simon to Peter. And Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. And there are others as well. And the change of name symbolized what the Bible talks about when, when we are born again by faith. We are born again. We are no longer identified by our past. We are no longer identified by cultural categories, by our ethnicity, for example, or by nationality, or by wealth, or by status, or by our successes, or our pile of gold medals, or even our failures in sin. It means to be identified with and by Christ Jesus. We don't look to the culture around us to tell us who we are anymore. We look to Jesus who tells us who we are. And Jesus tells us we belong to him. He makes us citizens of his eternal kingdom. And he calls us to repent, to turn, and to trust him. I want to close with a little illustration that uh, way back at the early part of the 20th century, early 1900s, uh, it was discovered that a substance that came to be called radium-226, when, when it was added to paint, it caused that paint to glow in the dark at night. Okay? And when that was discovered, um, it, it was not yet known to be radioactive and dangerous. It was just thought to be pretty cool. So watch, watch companies uh, bought this stuff, put it in paint, and then had their employees paint the faces of their watches by hand. Usually they were female employees working in factories, and they had tiny paintbrushes, and they would paint the watch faces with this fluorescent paint. And they were taught to what was called pointing their brushes, to lick their, the brushes with their lips to make them really fine between every stroke. Okay? And when, they, when the women would ask, is this stuff dangerous, their bosses would say, no, 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 it's fine. It'll give you more sex appeal. But what it gave them was cancer and birth defects. Dozens of these women died from cancer until they discovered the danger of radioactive poisoning. We now know that it's incredibly dangerous to people, and they stopped using it in the 1930s. But what Jesus is saying here to the church in Pergamon is that you've come into contact with some dangerous and poisonous stuff. It's all around you. You've let it seep into your midst. A pagan culture that glorifies sexual immorality. Teachers that are encouraging compromise. And little by little, he's saying, 
My church is being poisoned. That's what he's saying. So I wonder, where do we find ourselves 20 centuries later in this letter? Are we in the letter? I think we have to ask ourselves, what are we tolerating as harmless that threatens to poison our faith? What are we tolerating? Jesus is saying to Chapel Street, I believe, I know where you live. Remember, he's the one that walks among the lampstands. I know where you live. I know you live in a culture that is affluent in so many ways, but that is increasingly immoral, that is increasingly hostile toward my name. You are not to be influenced by the world around you. You are to be my influencers into that world as salt and light. He's saying, do not look to the culture around you for truth. Look at me for truth. Do not look at the culture to tell you who you are, to give you your identity. I tell you who you are. I give you your new name. You belong to me, he says. I will give you the hidden manna that only I can give. I will give you the white stone, and I will give you your new name. Would you bow with me as we close today? Lord Jesus, thank you today for your word. Thank you for this ancient letter that is so contemporary, shockingly contemporary when we really dig into it. And by your Holy Spirit, allow your word to cut into our hearts and minds like a sharp double-edged sword. Remind us of your truth. Keep us faithful to your name. Remind us of your great promises of hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name that only you know. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.